All right, uh, welcome back to the Young Church. We got a couple of great interviews coming up for you guys, uh, and then in the post game for the members. That's the last half hour of the Young Turks. Uh, I'm going to talk to someone that, who worked, who works here, who got arrested falsely uh, by the police, and um, some chance that it might be racial, uh, as you're uh, going to see in the story. And then in this uh, second segment of of this half hour, I'm going to talk to a Medicare for All expert, and he's going to tell you the difference between Medicare for All. And what the corporate Democrats are suggesting. And so it's a giant difference, and it's really important for you guys to know. So I want to make sure you guys listen to that as well. But let's get go to my first guest here. John Putner joins us. He is the executive director of Take Back Our Republic. There are some things that John and I agree on, including the need for election reform, even if we don't necessarily agree on the exact contours of that. But I believe this topic we do not agree on, which is many of the things that is true. But that's what democracy looks like when we get that back. Okay, so John, welcome to the Young Turks. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I've been yeah. dreading this interview because I thought I finally convinced you I was a reasonable conservative, and you may change your mind today. We'll see. Yes, yes, I'm looking forward to that. Um, <laughs> so um, let's start with the basics. Uh, Mueller report says. There is some evidence of collusion, but not enough to charge him with a crime. So I think it's fair. Some people disagree, but I think it's fair to say that uh, that is uh, exoneration on the note uh, on the collusion issue, at, at least in terms of the election. Okay, I have other theories about before and after the election. But when you turn to obstruction, Mueller is equally clear, and he says that there are ten different instances where the president clearly obstructed, and then he leaves it up to Congress to do something about it. Do we agree on that or no? I don't necessarily think he agrees on Congress, but he did not make a call on it. So obviously that's the battle right now between Barr and Congress on who he left it up to, I guess, would be the disagreement. But I read that, John, and Mueller's report said that this is within the purview of Congress and Congress should act. So it didn't say, hey, I can't tell if it's the Attorney General of Congress. Mueller's point of view is that the Department of Justice cannot indict a sitting president, so that only leaves Congress as the option. So when Barr said, "Oh, he he didn't make up his mind," isn't that misleading? He actually had very clear evidence of obstruction and said that Congress should act. Well, I don't know. I mean, Barr's obviously been hit very hard since the Mueller report came out for a couple of weeks. But I'd I'd actually look a little bit at political reality if Congress does want to act. I mean, if you look at Polling today, after two weeks of pretty intense hits on Barr from the left, you know we have 44 percent of the public saying Barr handled this well. 43 percent do not approve of him handling. You know, wash. 37 percent now want impeachment. 59 percent don't want impeachment. I mean, that, those are pretty staggering numbers after a couple weeks of hitting him. And uh, almost half independents now saying Democrats are doing too much investigating. Trump's approval hit his highest uh, favorable rate in two years in CNN's polling. So. I mean, if Congress wants to act on it, and they're the body that reacts to public opinion, I'd say the public opinion is moving the other way. And I think they're just thinking, hey, we're a year and a half in an election. <laughs> Let's get on and decide this is the ballot box again. So John, if Nancy Pelosi is right that this would not play well politically for the Democrats, and the public polling shows what you're saying, and you all think that impeachment would turn out poorly for the Democrats, then why don't you look forward to it? Move forward with impeachment? Well, yeah. I, I think if, if Republicans suddenly call for impeachment, 
with 59% of the country disagreeing with them, I think that would change the dynamics. I mean, then you would have, I think those Republicans would certainly lose office. Uh, but I think it's a tough one, even for the Democrats, with that little support publicly for impeachment right now. So, but wait a minute, I, I, I'm not presupposing that the Republicans are gonna back impeachment. Shouldn't you guys in the right wing be enthusiastic about the Democrats pursuing impeachment if you think it's gonna help you so much? Well, I, I think it's a question of dragging the country through more investigations. I mean, you know, mm. you obviously you know, drew your conclusions from Mueller's report, but it was extensively done. And the idea that, you know, continuing to call witnesses and have hearings and drag this out, um, I, I just think we're over halfway through a term of a presidency and it would be better for the country to move on. Um, yes, I could see it benefiting Republicans potentially. Uh, if there were impeachment, if they if they carried it forward, um, but uh, but I think that's not the bigger concern. And as as I like to remind people, I'm out of running Republican campaigns. I'm personally Republican, but I don't run them anymore. So I'd like to think, from the country's perspective, it'd be better to move on to other issues. And I think, even your segment two two hours ago, you hit on some of the other issues that I think were you know would be good to bring forward, and the reasons that most of your viewers would probably like to see the president defeated. Um, yeah, there are a lot of other issues to campaign on that really affect the average voter, I'd say. Uh, I've got a counter theory, John, and I want to run it by you. Uh, I think the Republicans are scared to death of impeachment proceedings, and so is Donald Trump. Because then the whole country would get to see his crimes listed out over and over again and clearly proven. And that that would pummel Republican and Trump polling numbers. Uh, and that is why right now the Republicans are going, Oh, you don't want to do impeachment. You don't want to do impeachment. Oh, that, that would be bad for you guys. I've never seen the Republicans scared of something that they thought would help them politically. What do you think about my counter theory? I think we'll just have to disagree on that one. <laughs> I, I, I do think that uh, they're probably more concerned with some of this talk of subpoenaing and, and putting people in prison if they don't answer subpoenas, members of the administration. I mean, that's the part that I do think has people nervous. So we're really going to. Go to those kind of nuclear options uh, more so than impeachment, but uh, I, I really think it'd be better for the country to move on. And in some ways, we're already in the next campaign election and start going through this democratic process that we all want to try to make better. On the points you and I do agree on. Yeah. So, uh, but let's stick with the ones we don't. Um, <laughs> so, so first of all, my personal view on uh, impeachment is uh, I don't know, nor do I care that much about the politics of it. Uh, I think on principle, if the president has broken the law, he's not above the law. And he clearly did obstruction of justice, and he clearly committed a felony on campaign finance violations, and his co-conspirator is going to prison for it, and the president shouldn't be above the law. That's my take on it. But I do wanna move on to Barr. Uh, one one more thing about Barr today. So he, he told Congress that he was unaware earlier um, that uh, Mueller's team had any objections to his summary of their report. Well, today we found out that that was clearly not true. He had received a letter from Mueller saying that they were very concerned about his summary. And he went to Congress afterwards and said he didn't know that they were concerned. So that's a clear lie. John, can we agree that's a lie? Well, I think there's agreement that he didn't like the narrative that was playing out as a result of this four page summary. Uh, you know, his his testimony today was that when they talked, he said he did not disagree with the conclusions. It sounds like Lindsey Graham's going to follow up and see if there's a disagreement on that issue or not. So I'd say the jury's out on that until Mueller comes back. And you know, if Mueller comes back and says, no, I didn't, agree, I didn't disagree with 
with his conclusions. I just didn't like that there wasn't a context given that would be one thing. If Mueller comes back and says, oh, no, I thought the four-page letter was BS, that would obviously be a different one and tend toward your interpretation. Yeah, so first of all, I don't believe anything Barr says about what Mueller said, because he doesn't have a good track record on that. So I would like to see Mueller testify and, and see what uh, the phone conversation was. But I think the phone conversation uh, largely is irrelevant. Guy sends you a strongly worded letter saying, I have serious concerns about what you did. You go in front of Congress and say, I don't know that he had any serious concerns. That's a lie, that's perjury. Barr should step down, my guess is you're gonna disagree. I will disagree on that with you. I think Barr's got a very distinguished record. And part of my issue is it seems like anyone who takes an appointment from Trump is then lambasted as you know an evil person, uh, no matter what. And uh, you know, he's a he's a distinguished guy. This isn't some strange odd appointment. Like oh my gosh, how could this guy Barr be Attorney General? Um, you know, and I think this extends out to the harassing administration people when they go out to eat and the doxing and the shaming, you know, th those are things I don't like that I don't think are healthy for democracy and just kind of this character uh, assassination that I see. But I know we disagree on those issues. All right, uh, but we did find a little bit of agreement there because you said, well, William Barr didn't come out of the blue. That's true. Uh, he's the guy who as a private attorney randomly wrote a letter uh, to the government saying, uh, I think that Donald Trump is innocent without having seen any of the evidence. And I, if I was the Attorney General, I would protect him in every way that I could. And then guess what? Trump appointed him Attorney General, so it wasn't out of the blue at all. <laughs> well, I'd say uh, Eric Holder's writings probably made President Obama feel pretty comfortable that he'd defend him on things too. I, yeah, I understand you're talking about a specific case, but yes, you pick an Attorney General who you think agrees with you on things, no, no question, and that's true with him, but. I certainly wouldn't view Holder as kind of a nonpartisan attorney general if you look at what he's done before and after he was in office. So I don't see the, the difference there. No, I, I do, but but I will grant you this, and this is an important point and a legitimate one that you're making. So I don't think that Holder viewed his job as being the president's attorney. He viewed it as being the attorney general of the United States and protecting the American citizens, whereas Barr seems to think he's Trump's attorney, which is not the job. But uh, the point that you're making about how Holder uh, wasn't clean either is is generally true. If he didn't protect Obama and there wasn't really much reason to quote unquote protect Obama, uh, he certainly did protect his donors, which you could argue is a little bit worse uh, because uh, Holder said we can't bail uh, we can't jail the bankers because they're too big to jail. Well, they were also Obama's top donors in 2008. Right. No, that is true. And I know you got on Republicans for jumping to other issues, Clinton, et cetera, during the hearings. I do think there's some legitimacy to that, though, because what the legitimate part is, what is the criteria for obstruction? What is the criteria for collusion? And is this going to be the same criteria for everyone? And I think in those contexts, it is fair to make these comparisons, whether it's well, President Obama said to the Russian prime minister, I just got to get through this election, and then basically I let down missile defense. I mean, Okay, is that, is that collusion? No, I'm not saying I'm going after Obama on that. I'm just saying comparing Clinton, uh, you know, how Clinton was addressed, how Obama was, I think that's fair. And when I defended Mueller in, in one debate um, during the investigation, I said, look, my point hasn't been that he's doing too much investigating. It's that there's too little that has been done yeah, to other candidates. And you know, we'd like to see consistency. So I think it's okay for context purposes to bring up other campaigns. I certainly agree with you that Saying Clinton did something bad too doesn't you know doesn't exonerate Trump, but I've never said he exonerated. I just said vindicated. 
I think that basically the Mueller report vindicated a central case. There's no collusion. Exoneration is a whole other word, and I wouldn't use that word. All right, John Putner, Executive Director of Take Back Our Republic. The website is takeback.org. Uh, and and John, as always, great to have a clean, honest conversation with you, uh, even on issues we clearly disagree on. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. So much. All right. Uh, so uh, when we come back, uh, uh, guests from the other end of the political spectrum, Michael Light is going to explain the difference between the corporate Democratic so-called Medicare plan and and Medicare for all, and it is a vast and important difference. There was hearings on it last week. Make sure. You understand the trick that some of the other candidates are trying to play on this issue. We'll come right back in touch. All right, back on the Young Turks. So I've got this shirt on today. It's Ilhan Omar, too strong, right? Here, if you can take the lower third away. So it's it just came out on shoptyt.com. There's a conservative writer with a headline that says, "Just now, I just checked it." Uh, Ilhan Omar blames the United States for devastation in Venezuela. Yeah, we had a lot to do with it. Too strong. <laughs> I love when they like get triggered by progressives saying things that are factual. Okay. Anyway, uh, all right. Let's go to our next guest. Uh, joining me now is Michael Lighty. He's with the Sanders Institute, uh, and Michael's got details on Medicare for all. How you doing, Michael? I'm very well, Tank. How are you? I'm awesome. Uh, so, Michael, uh, we had Medicare for All hearings uh, yesterday, uh, first time ever in the House. Uh, uh, first of all, just out of curiosity, how do you think they went? I thought they went very well. I thought that uh, Adi Barkin's uh, statement and testimony, as you reported on yesterday, was incredibly powerful. And it made, I think, both a compelling policy case, but just the profound emotional appeal of someone who obviously has such a um, devastating disease and impactful um, experience with the healthcare system, I think, opens the window maybe to many Americans who haven't had that kind of experience. And then also, um, uh, Representative Raskin's distinction between misfortune and justice, very powerful. I think it's not great that it happened in the Rules Committee, because of course, that's not a committee of jurisdiction. So to the announcement yesterday that Ways and Means will do a hearing in the House, uh, that is a committee of jurisdiction. And so this is real progress. It's a, actually an extraordinary moment, I think, for our movement. Okay, so now let's talk about um, the difference between Medicare for All, which is what the hearings are about, and some of the other Democratic plans. These are not Republican plans, and they have names like Medicare for America. That makes it sound very much like Medicare for All. Uh, now, some of the candidates have backed that and said that's the same thing as Medicare for All. And it comes mainly out of Center for American Progress. And I had Neera Tandon, who runs Center for American Progress on the show, and she defended on the program. I wanted to get you on and get maybe a different opinion. So first, very clearly, are they the same thing? No, and I think that the attempt to make them the same or to make them sound the same is intentional to obscure the fundamental difference. And that is universal coverage is not the same thing as guaranteed health care with no barriers to care. Medicare for America relies upon the private insurance system. Medicare for all guarantees health care through an expansion and improvement of the existing traditional Medicare system, which is a single payer. These appear to be similar, but they obscure the difference between when you have insurance and can get care versus a single payer system that guarantees that you will get the care you need. So Michael, let's talk about those distinctions. Because 
a lot of people in the mainstream media think it's wonderful that private insurance is maintained in a system like Medicare for America. And they go, what are you guys complaining about? And you get to, if you want, you could have Medicare, or if you want, you could have private insurance, and you can keep the private insurance that a lot of Americans really like. So what's your counter to that? Well, I don't really hear Americans telling us that they like private insurance. What I hear Americans say is they're desperate to keep it because without that minimal protection, they're truly at the mercy of a profit-making, really murderous healthcare industry. And so the, the fundamental difference there is that these insurance companies simply are middlemen who take revenue to make profit and depend upon denials of care in order to make money. And they make substantial amounts of money. And that that really is what Medicare for All eliminates, is the inefficiencies and the fragmentation of the present system, which diverts resources from care to profits and revenue at the expense of, of patients. And so I think that really is the fundamental difference. So I think that some of the push polling that's been done in the media is dishonest, where they do a poll and they say, would your opinion on Medicare for all change if you knew that it took away your private insurance? It makes it sound like you would replace it with nothing. Well, then I would be opposed to it. Exactly. <laughs> but what it does is it actually replaces it with more coverage, with no copays, no premiums, no deductibles. So I think that's obviously misleading. But let's talk about other issues in Medicare for America. So you talk about how we spend $262 billion subsidizing employer-sponsored health plans, that that comes from taxpayers. What do you mean by that? Can you explain that a little bit more? Sure. Well, what happens is when you when an employee gets paid $1,000 as wages, that's taxed. However, $1,000 worth of health care is not taxed when your employer provides it. That's a tax benefit to your employer. Also, when you purchase health care on the exchange, you get tax subsidies. Similarly, you get a tax benefit when your employer provides insurance because you're not paying taxes on the value of that health plan. And so that's actually a huge subsidy as you pointed out, $262 billion a year just for the employer portion. So there are really only three ways to pay for health care. You can pay for ourselves individually, or you can have an insurance company intermediary take our money and then pay the providers with a spiff for them, or the government can pay directly those providers. Obviously, the third way is more efficient. And so when Medicare for America relies upon those tax subsidies, they're essentially spending money on things other than patient care. And so you can't argue that that's a more efficient system or it's the same thing as devoting 98% of the healthcare dollar to actual healthcare. And that's what Medicare does. And that's certainly not what Medicare for America could do. And I'm always curious about this. This doesn't get talked about enough. So if you had Medicare for all, then obviously all the employer healthcare plans are Vitiated. There's no point in them. Everyone has coverage without copays, premiums, deductibles, and you have more extensive coverage than almost all the private insurance plans now. So then at that point, the employers have all this money that they pay into healthcare that 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 is now at their disposal. So what do you think the and that you they used to spend on behalf of employees? So what do you think happens to salaries in America in that scenario? 
Well, in two ways, salaries go up and household income goes up because you're absolutely right. Obviously, this money, we believe it's at least an 8% of payroll savings for uh, your average business. Those monies are available for wages, for innovation, for growth. Actually, the irony is, of course, there's more freedom and liberty in the economy under Medicare for all because workers can change jobs. They can uh, not be bound by a job just to keep the health insurance. Employers are free to the hassles. And so when we eliminate premiums, co-pays, and deductibles, replace that with public financing, it saves households and businesses tremendous amounts of money and actually creates new resources for the economy. So I always think that the, uh, the economic arguments and the liberty arguments in terms of the economy are strongly in favor of Medicare for all. And again, going back to that issue of employer-provided insurance, Medicare for America does not give employees choice. If your employer decides to buy into this new program, there you go. And if you go then change jobs, as 60 million Americans do every year, you're in a new uh, employer who doesn't necessarily want to buy into Medicare, and you're back in the private insurance game. And that, I think, is a, is a recipe for fragmentation, inefficiency, and waste, which is a, exactly what the present uh, system does. So, Michael, I I believe you've written in the past that the Medicare for all bill, the Sanders bill from 2017, would lower the cost for a family making $62,000 a year from an average of $10,000 to $900 per year. That seems to be too big a difference. I'm literally going to ask you this, are you sure? Well, you know, it's a very, I know, I know, it does seem remarkable, but what happens is, is that if you actually eliminate these inefficiencies that I've been discussing, uh, the economic analysis that was done by the Political Economy Research Institute at the UMass Amherst identified 19% in overall system savings. And so that's substantial. That includes uh, the impact of uh, lowering prescription drug price, prices, as well as eliminating these administrative inefficiencies in the profit and exec salaries of the insurers. And so once you are able to save that much within the system, yes, you can then um, obviously finance it with um, relatively uh, straightforward and lower taxes. So 60% of the funding is already coming from taxes for healthcare. If we do broad-based taxes, say what we identified in that PURI study was a gross receipts tax and a broad-based national sales tax that would be mitigated for low-income folks, they wouldn't pay anything. Uh, we actually did find that a middle-class family uh, wouldn't be paying the gross receipts tax. Typically, they would pay a sales tax, and that could amount to only $900 a year. There's actually ways to finance this that don't involve increasing taxes on the middle class, because, of course, there is a lot of money in the system from employers uh, who are already paying too much for health care. So Michael, let's keep it real, it, how about the um, upper class? And I don't mean just top 1%. There's gotta be some percentage of Americans that are wealthier that are gonna pay more in taxes than they would have paid for their private insurance. So it, is the overall healthcare cost going to go up for those families? Yes, but what's amazing though is that those families now actually don't pay anything out of pocket for healthcare. They get a net benefit from the current system because the values of the tax subsidies that I mentioned earlier 
on average, are so great for upper income individuals that actually they have a, the, the Peary study estimated that they might have a, actually a, a net negative one or 2% that they, <laughs> that they don't spend on healthcare. So yes, as a, as a portion of income, their spending on healthcare goes up um, on a positive side, maybe to three or 4%. And that is an increase uh, because there is a wealth tax associated with this. There's a change in the status of capital gains, which the wealthy uh, depend upon for income as opposed to wages. So we tax those at the same level as wages. So there are a lot of pay-fors, as they say, for this that do depend on upper income uh, tax increases. But those folks are literally not paying anything for healthcare now. So real quick, Michael, last thing on that. I don't know if you have a guess on this, but what's your best guess on how many Americans would be affected by that? Is it top 1%, top 10, top 20? Do you have any idea? Uh, it's it's uh, actually a very small percentage uh, of the, uh, I think it's, it's of the top 10%, uh, it, and it's a, a percentage of that. I'm not recalling it uh, exactly. Okay, Sorry. so roughly uh, the bottom 90% will wind up paying less for healthcare. The top 10% will pay a little bit more for healthcare, but right. we will in have universal sense, coverage. Right, excuse me, Jake. In that sense, about 95% of people pay less, and it's really less than 5% that pay more. Okay. All right, uh, there, there you go. Uh, those are all the facts uh, for you to decide. So when people say that they're for Medicare for America, understand it's definitely not the same thing as Medicare for all. Now you've heard Michael Lighty explain the differences. You've heard Nira Tandon talk about the differences. So you've got enough information to judge for yourselves. Michael, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jane. It's great to see you. All right, good to see you. Okay, now we're gonna do a very unique post game. Last half hour of the Young Turks here for the members. Jagori Palmer works here. He sometimes directs the show. And he had an incident with the police in Los Angeles actually a while back. Uh, we didn't want to talk about it uh, while there were uh, proceedings going on, uh, but it is a jarring story, and it gives you a sense of different ways uh, that uh, different races in this country are treated. So I don't want you to miss this. Uh, please, uh, tyt.com/join to become a member and and hear that. Uh, and I and I hope we're uh, providing an interesting perspective for our members. And then uh, also for the members later today at 6:30, and this time I think it's going to be 6:30 sharp. Um, we're gonna do old school with Brett Ehrlich, Mark Thompson, and Matt Walsh. So Matt is on Veep and he's coming to join us. So lots to look forward to for members. We'll see you in a minute if you're a member.